The 16th Amendment to the United States Constitution allows Congress to levy an income tax without apportioning it among the states on the basis of population. It was passed by Congress in 1909 in response to the 1895 Supreme Court case of Pollock v. Farmers Loan and Trust Company. The 16th Amendment was ratified by the requisite number of states on February 3, 1913, and effectively overruled the Supreme Court's ruling in Pollock. Prior to the early 20th century, most federal revenue came from tariffs rather than taxes, although Congress had often imposed excise taxes on various goods. The Revenue Act of 1861 had introduced the first federal income tax, but that tax was repealed in 1872. During the late 19th century, various groups, including the Populist Party, favored the establishment of a progressive income tax at the federal level. These groups believed that tariffs unfairly taxed the poor, and they favored using the income tax to shift the tax burden onto wealthier individuals. The 1894 Wilson-Gorman Tariff Act contained an income tax provision, but the tax was struck down by the Supreme Court in the case of Pollock v. Farmers Loan and Trust Company in its ruling, the Supreme Court did not hold that all federal income taxes were unconstitutional, but rather held that income taxes on rents, dividends, and interest were direct taxes and thus had to be apportioned among the states on the basis of population. For several years after Pollock, Congress did not attempt to implement another income tax, largely due to concerns that the Supreme Court would strike down any attempt to levy an income tax. In 1909, during the debate over the Payne-Aldrich Tariff Act, Congress proposed the 16th Amendment to the states. Though conservative Republican leaders had initially expected that the amendment would not be ratified, a coalition of Democrats, progressive Republicans, and other groups ensured that the necessary number of states ratified the amendment. Shortly after the amendment was ratified, Congress imposed a federal income tax with the Revenue Act of 1913. The Supreme Court upheld that income tax in the 1916 case of Brushaber v. Union Pacific Railroad Company, and the federal government has continued to levy an income tax since 1913. Text. The Congress shall have power to lay and collect taxes on incomes, from whatever source derived, without apportionment among the several states, and without regard to any census or enumeration. Other constitutional provisions regarding taxes. Article I, Section 2, Clause 3. Representatives and direct taxes shall be apportioned among the several states which may be included within this union, according to their respective numbers. Article I, Section 8, Clause 1. The Congress shall have power to lay and collect taxes, duties, imposts, and excises, to pay the debts and provide for the common defense and general welfare of the United States, but all duties, imposts and excises shall be uniform throughout the United States. Article I, Section 9, Clause 4. No capitation, or other direct, tax shall be laid, unless in proportion to the census or enumeration herein before directed to be taken. This clause basically refers to a tax on property, such as a tax based on the value of land, as well as a capitation. Article I, Section 9, Clause 5. No tax or duty shall be laid on articles exported from any state. Income taxes before the Pollock case. Until 1913, customs duties, tariffs, and excise taxes were the primary sources of federal revenue. During the War of 1812, Secretary of the Treasury Alexander J. Dallas made the first public proposal for an income tax, but it was never implemented. The Congress did introduce an income tax to fund the Civil War through the Revenue Act of 1861. It levied a flat tax of 3% on annual income above $800. This act was replaced the following year with the Revenue Act of 1862, which levied a graduated tax of 3-5% on income above $600 and specified a termination of income taxation in 1866. The Civil War income taxes, which expired in 1872, 
proved to be both highly lucrative and drawing mostly from the more industrialized states, with New York, Pennsylvania, and Massachusetts generating about 60% of the total revenue that was collected. During the two decades following the expiration of the Civil War income tax, the Greenback Movement, the Labor Reform Party, the Populist Party, the Democratic Party and many others called for a graduated income tax. The Socialist Labor Party advocated a graduated income tax in 1887. The Populist Party demanded a graduated income tax in its 1892 platform. The Democratic Party, led by William Jennings Bryan, advocated the income tax law passed in 1894, and proposed an income tax in its 1908 platform. Proponents of the income tax generally believed that high tariff rates exacerbated income inequality, and wanted to use the income tax to shift the burden of funding the government away from working-class consumers and to hiring businessmen. Before Pollock v. Farmers Loan and Trust Company, all income taxes had been considered to be indirect taxes imposed without respect to geography, unlike direct taxes, that have to be apportioned among the states according to population. The Pollock case. In 1894, an amendment was attached to the Wilson-Gorman Tariff Act that attempted to impose a federal tax of 2% on incomes over $4,000, equal to $120,000 in 2020. The federal income tax was strongly favored in the South, and it was moderately supported in the eastern north-central states, but it was strongly opposed in the far west and the northeastern states, with the exception of New Jersey. The tax was derided as undemocratic, inquisitorial, and wrong in principle. In Pollock v. Farmers Loan and Trust Company, the U.S. Supreme Court declared certain taxes on incomes, such as those on property under the 1894 Act, to be unconstitutionally unapportioned direct taxes. The court reasoned that a tax on income from property should be treated as a tax on property by reason of its ownership, and so should be required to be apportioned. The reasoning was that taxes on the rents from land, the dividends from stocks, and so forth, burden the property generating the income in the same way that a tax on property by reason of its ownership burdened that property. After Pollock, while income taxes on wages, as indirect taxes, were still not required to be apportioned by population, taxes on interest, dividends, and rental income were required to be apportioned by population. The Pollock ruling made the source of the income, for example, property versus labor, etc., relevant in determining whether the tax imposed on that income was deemed to be direct, and thus required to be apportioned among the states according to population, or, alternatively, indirect, and thus required only to be imposed with geographical uniformity. Dissenting in Pollock, Justice John Marshall Harlan stated. When, therefore, this court adjudges, as it does now adjudge, that Congress cannot impose a duty or tax upon personal property, or upon income arising either from rents of real estate or from personal property, including invested personal property, bonds, stocks, and investments of all kinds, except by apportioning the sum to be so raised among the states according to population, it practically decides that, without an amendment of the Constitution, two-thirds of both houses of Congress and three-fourths of the states concurring, such property and incomes can never be made to contribute to the support of the national government. Members of Congress responded to Pollock by expressing widespread concern that many of the wealthiest Americans had consolidated too much economic power. Nonetheless, in the years after Pollock, Congress did not implement another federal income tax, partly because many congressmen feared that any tax would be struck down by the Supreme Court. Few considered attempting to impose an apportioned income tax, since such a tax was widely regarded as unworkable. Adoption. On June 16, 1909, President William Howard Taft, in an address to the 61st Congress, proposed a 2% federal income tax on corporations by way of an excise tax and a constitutional amendment to allow the previously enacted income tax. 
Upon the privilege of doing business as an artificial entity and of freedom from a general partnership liability enjoyed by those who own the stock. An income tax amendment to the Constitution was first proposed by Senator Norris Brown of Nebraska. He submitted two proposals, Senate Resolutions Numbers 25 and 39. The amendment proposal finally accepted was Senate Joint Resolution Number 40, introduced by Senator Nelson W. Aldrich of Rhode Island, the Senate Majority Leader and Finance Committee Chairman. The amendment was proposed as part of the congressional debate over the 1909 Payne-Aldrich Tariff Act. By proposing the amendment, Aldrich hoped to temporarily defuse progressive calls for the imposition of new taxes in the Tariff Act. Aldrich and other conservative leaders in Congress largely opposed the actual ratification of the amendment, but they believed that it had little chance of being ratified, as ratification required approval by three-quarters of the state legislatures. On July 12, 1909, the resolution proposing the 16th Amendment was passed by the Congress and was submitted to the state legislatures. Support for the income tax was strongest in the western and southern states, while opposition was strongest in the northeastern states. Supporters of the income tax believed that it would be a much better method of gathering revenue than tariffs, which were the primary source of revenue at the time. From well before 1894, Democrats, progressives, populists, and other left-oriented parties argued that tariffs disproportionately affected the poor, interfered with prices, were unpredictable, and were an intrinsically limited source of revenue. The South and the West tended to support income taxes because their residents were generally less prosperous, more agricultural and more sensitive to fluctuations in commodity prices. A sharp rise in the cost of living between 1897 and 1913 greatly increased support for the idea of income taxes, including in the urban Northeast. A growing number of Republicans also began supporting the idea, notably Theodore Roosevelt and the insurgent Republicans, who would go on to form the Progressive Party. These Republicans were driven mainly by a fear of the increasingly large and sophisticated military forces of Japan, Britain and the European powers, their own imperial ambitions, and the perceived need to defend American merchant ships. Moreover, these progressive Republicans were convinced that central governments could play a positive role in national economies. A bigger government and a bigger military, they argued, required a correspondingly larger and steadier source of revenue to support it. Opposition to the 16th Amendment was led by establishment Republicans because of their close ties to wealthy industrialists, although not even they were uniformly opposed to the general idea of a permanent income tax. In 1910, New York Governor Charles Evans Hughes, shortly before becoming a Supreme Court Justice, spoke out against the income tax amendment. Hughes supported the idea of a federal income tax, but believed the words from whatever source derived in the proposed amendment implied that the federal government would have the power to tax state and municipal bonds. He believed this would excessively centralized governmental power and would make it impossible for the state to keep any property. Between 1909 and 1913, several conditions favored passage of the 16th Amendment. Inflation was high and many blamed federal tariffs for the rising prices. The Republican Party was divided and weakened by the loss of Roosevelt and the insurgents who joined the Progressive Party, a problem that blunted opposition even in the Northeast. In 1912, the Democrats won the presidency and control of both houses of Congress. The country was generally in a left-leaning mood, with a member of the Socialist Party winning a seat in the U.S. House in 1910 and the party's presidential candidate polling 6% of the popular vote in 1912. Three advocates for a federal income tax ran in the presidential election of 1912. On February 25, 1913, Secretary of State Philander Knox proclaimed that the amendment had been ratified by three-fourths of the states and so had become part of the Constitution. The Revenue Act of 1913, which greatly lowered tariffs and implemented a federal income tax, was enacted shortly after the 16th Amendment was ratified. 
Ratification. According to the United States Government Publishing Office, the following states ratify the amendment. 1. Alabama, August 10, 1909. 2. Kentucky, February 8, 1910. 3. South Carolina, February 19, 1910. 4. Illinois, March 1, 1910. 5. Mississippi, March 7, 1910. 6. Oklahoma, March 10, 1910. 7. Maryland, April 8, 1910. 8. Georgia, August 3, 1910. 9. Texas, August 16, 1910. 10. Ohio, January 19, 1911. 11. Idaho, January 20, 1911. 12. Oregon, January 23, 1911. 13. Washington, January 26, 1911. 14. Montana, January 27, 1911. 15. Indiana, January 30, 1911. 16. California, January 31, 1911. 17. Nevada, January 31, 1911. 18. South Dakota, February 1, 1911. 19. Nebraska, February 9, 1911. 20. North Carolina, February 11, 1911. 21. Colorado, February 15, 1911. 22. North Dakota, February 17, 1911. 23. Michigan, February 23, 1911. 24. Iowa, February 24, 1911. 25. Kansas, March 2, 1911. 26. Missouri, March 16, 1911. 27. Maine, March 31, 1911. 28. Tennessee, April 7, 1911. 29. Arkansas, April 22, 1911, after having previously rejected the amendment. 30. Wisconsin, May 16, 1911. 31. New York, July 12, 1911. 32. Arizona, April 3, 1912. 33. Minnesota, June 11, 1912. 34. Louisiana, June 28, 1912. 35. West Virginia, January 31, 1913. 36. Delaware, February 3, 1913. Ratification, by the requisite 36 states, was completed on February 3, 1913, with the ratification by Delaware. The amendment was subsequently ratified by the following states, bringing the total number of ratifying states to 42 of the 48 then existing. 37. New Mexico, February 3, 1913. 38. Wyoming, February 3, 1913. 39. New Jersey, February 4, 1913. 40. Vermont, February 19, 1913. 41. Massachusetts, March 4, 1913. 42. New Hampshire, March 7, 1913, after rejecting the amendment on March 2, 1911. The legislatures of the following states rejected the amendment without ever subsequently ratifying it. Connecticut. Rhode Island. Utah. Virginia. The legislatures of the following states never considered the proposed amendment. Florida. Pennsylvania. The text of this podcast is sourced from the Wikipedia Foundation under a Creative Commons attribution, share alike license. The written text has been altered for voice presentation. To view the modified and original text versions visit thelegalpages.com. The content of this podcast is presented for informational purposes only, and is not intended to be legal or professional advice. 
The Wikipedia Foundation is not affiliated with this podcast.